Praise the Lord, you God and money. The silence when that was announced was so encouraging, but you know, it's all good. It's an important topic and I think it's, it's really critical that we talk about it in church because, you know, there's a lot of assumptions when any pastor or preacher mentions money or finances, everyone's like, all right, he's about to bring out the offering plates, you know, about to tell us all the reasons why we need to give. Um, and that's really not, uh, that's probably coming in the next two Sundays, but that's not really what I need to talk about. I, I want to kind of establish a, a foundation today. What principles go into helping us as Christians form a biblical ethic about finances? Where should we be united on the way that we understand how we're to handle God's resources that he's given us? You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter six, verse 21, he said, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. In other words, whatever you value the most is going to determine the direction of your worship. So the question that we need to ask is who am I worshiping with my wallet? If my checkbook were to be reviewed and my expenses on my credit card statement, where does my devotion lean? Now, thank God, we are only asked scripturally to give 10%. So you don't have to do that by percent. I gave 90% to the kingdom of God this year and only 10% was on myself. You wouldn't eat. You know, you wouldn't be able to eat if you lived like that. And you know, the scripture is very sensitive. Did you know that in the days when, when Jesus was ministering on earth, it's estimated that the average Judean, the average Jewish person living in the area he was ministering to would have had to spend about 85% of their income on food. Food alone, 85% of their income had to go to food. That didn't include clothing and other basic needs. These people knew what it meant to live in poverty. They knew what it meant to live hand to mouth. And Jesus is speaking to them. And much of the New Testament is speaking to people in that situation or one similar to it. So there's incredible sensitivity to this. What it's really going to come down to is our general attitude. What's our mindset? Do we view our finances as things that belong to us? Do our resources belong exclusively to us? Or do we see it as an object with which we can worship God? Is this something that belongs to him, just like every other part of my life belongs to him? Or is he only allowed to touch church life, but financial life? Well, God, that's me. I get to draw the lines here. So this is very much a spiritual matter. This is very much uh, an attitude that has to do with our, our worship, our spiritual health. And some of the goals I want to meet today is I, I really want to give you grounds that you can use to gauge your spiritual health in regard to money. Do we have a healthy attitude toward finances. That's one of the things I'm hoping to do, to give you a test that you can kind of take home with you and examine, all right, is, is my mind where it should be? Is my heart where it should be? I, I want to provide a path for us to walk where, again, this is, if this is a matter of worship, then the way that we spend our money should be considered for us a life of worship, a life of honoring God. How do we get there? I want to potentially lay a path for that today. And most importantly, I want you to see why the next two Sundays are going to be critical. You know, I believe it's Elder Jerry and Pastor Carter that are going to be speaking uh, after me, uh, you know, in the following weeks. But I really want us to see why it is that this needs multiple Sundays. Why something like this needs to be a series. Why can't we just kill this in half an hour and be done with it? Well, when you look at things like, let's take the divorce rate in this country, for example. 
And you think about how much finances has an influence on why marriages are breaking up. Finances are a serious source of depression and stress. Uh, We have people, I just spoke with someone before the service today who is dealing with all kinds of stress in their life because they're on the verge of eviction. People are facing real problems that are money related. We have to talk about this. I'm not content, and thank God this church is not content, to just look at people who are really potentially looking at homeless and say, well, just pray your way out. Have faith in God. Aren't, aren't you glad that that's not the, the pat answer? Like, Let's talk about this issue. What does the Bible say about how we as Christians can navigate these problems and God willing, seek a way out of it? Because God does not want us to live under stress and fear that's related to finances. He doesn't want that at all. And I want to ask you to turn with me to two passages of scripture. First Timothy 6, we're going to be spending quite a bit of time in. But before we get there, I want to look at Proverbs 24. So those are the two places we're going to be going. We'll start in Proverbs 24 and work our way to 1 Timothy 6. So Proverbs chapter 24, we're just going to be reading one verse, but this verse is packed. And I'm going to be giving you three principles about biblical money management. There are three mindsets that have to be kept in place. And if you have these three things in place, uh, you're going to be on your way to financial soundness. As far as Christianity is concerned, as far as God's standard is concerned, you can keep yourself in a place of financial soundness. You know, Bob Mumford gave an analogy. I don't know if he drew it uh, from something real to life, but he spoke of a harbor somewhere near Italy where the opening into the harbor from the sea was very narrow. And underneath the water, there were jagged rocks that if ships weren't careful, they could crash into and they would sink. And so what the harborists did was they set up three light posts in the middle of the harbor, out, staked them into the water. And so they told the captains and everyone sailing in, you want to bring your ship to the point where all three lights are lined up and they make one big light. And once you've got that, sail straight in and you're going to go right through the rocks and not crash. And so I'm hoping that these three principles will kind of function like that. If we can make sure that these three truths, these three biblical foundations are in place, we're not going to get smashed on the rocks of financial irresponsibility. Amen? That's what we're going for today. And the first uh, point that I want to give you, if you'll look at the screen, biblical money management involves responsibility. Responsibility is the first principle that needs to be in place. Um, If you are a lazy or irresponsible person, you need to repent and get that right with Jesus because guess what? God cares about that. God does not like laziness. He doesn't like irresponsibility. Saying I'm forgetful is not a good excuse for missing payments on things and not fulfilling your obligations. We are the people of God. We're called to a standard of excellence. We represent and carry his name. If we appeal to laziness or forgetfulness and we make ourselves look undependable and we make ourselves look irresponsible, that's not a good testimony for our Lord who died and saved us. He took full responsibility for our lives and we need to take responsibility for the resources that he gives to us. If you want to manage your money in a way that pleases and honors God, you have to consider it a means of responsibility. And this is important because I've heard people say, I've heard people say, the purpose of money is to have fun. a red mark on my forehead now, I'm sure. And and they meant it. And when you looked at their financial state, it reflected it. You know, the purpose of money is not to have fun. It's nice when you can have fun with money. 
But if you live like that, my goodness, you're going to be up to your eyeballs in debt and you're not going to have much to leave for the generation coming after you. This is a matter of responsibility. Look at Proverbs 24, just one verse, verse 27. And again, this is a packed loaded verse. It says, put your outdoor work in order and get your fields ready. After that, build your house. Now, this is written to an agricultural society. All wealth is tied up in how much land you own and how productive that land is. And here this father figure, most likely King Solomon, is telling his son, before you build your house, before you, and building a house back then had more to do with just you know, making a structure, before you start looking for a spouse, before you start trying to build a reputation, before you start trying to fulfill dreams and ambitions, you need to get your fields ready. You need to get your outdoor work in order. Why? Because they lived by the seasons. It's not like today we live in a society where there is a lot of wealth that can be increased and be made available to people from various walks of life. Back then, if you were lazy, if you procrastinated, you missed the rainy season and didn't plant soon enough, guess what? You and everybody in your house is going hungry that winter. That's why he's saying, look, before you start trying to pursue a certain kind of lifestyle, before you start trying to build dreams, build security first. Make sure that you have a dependable source of income. Make sure that you've got your outdoor work ready to go. Coupled with this, again, if you'll look at the screen, I want to give you a couple subpoints that fall under responsibility. Don't trade security for comfort because God hasn't promised wealth. Don't trade security for comfort because God hasn't promised wealth. Again, farming is hard work. The last thing any young man is going to want to do back then is go out and plow a field, turn the soil over, sow the seed, water it, and get it all ready for, for that. He wants to sit back, relax, enjoy life, do whatever, be a little lazy. I told my wife, you never have to worry about me becoming a uh, workaholic because I love being lazy too much. I don't like working. I'm a beach person. My idea of vacation is to sit and do nothing and have nothing demanded of me and just sit there. And I mean, it's wonderful. That's where I'm relaxed. My wife is stir crazy. She's got to be doing something. That's why she's more productive than I am. But I can't let my preferences overrule my responsibilities. I can't do that because I have a family to feed. I've got a wife and a little boy that are looking to me to provide. And if I go with my preferences, and this father figure in Proverbs is telling the son the same thing. Listen, don't be all caught up in trying to get the latest gadgets the latest toys, living above your means, things that you can't afford, you need to make sure that you're secure. Don't be pursuing comfort when you've got no stability. It doesn't work like that. And that's what he's exhorting him to do. You've got a, a limited window of time to get your fields ready so that you don't go hungry. You take care of that first, and then you can start to build your house. Then you're in a position to pursue marriage. Then you're in a position to build a reputation and follow some dreams and ambitions. That's one of the things that he's telling him. Secondly, with that, we need to check our checkbooks and check our priorities. Check your checkbook and check your priorities. They're very practical and down to earth today. I'm probably not going to jump and shout, but this is important. Praise God. Did you know... In 2012, there was a study conducted by a major, is an independent financial organization following the, the tracking habits of Americans. And in 2012, so this is six years ago now, it was estimated that 55% of Americans live at or above their means. That means they spend all of their paycheck or they spend more than their paycheck. 
55% of Americans. And we wonder why we're in financial crisis and so many people are, are losing their minds over their debt. 55%. That means no one is putting away for savings. No one is building something for the future. No one is storing things away. 55% of the country is being completely irresponsible. Everybody's got the latest phone. Everyone's got unlimited data plans, but nobody's got a savings. Everyone can afford Netflix, but people can't afford to put a little away here and there. Everybody can afford Amazon Prime, but nobody can seem to afford to, to make sure that they're paying up on their debts and they're, we're just going to pay off this credit card with another credit card and another. Listen, beloved, let me tell you something. As a pastor, with all the shepherdly love I can muster, that's sin. If you're living off of credit cards and you're using debt to pay off debt, that's sin and you need to get out of it. You can't live like that. The Bible says the borrower is the slave of the lender. God wants you to be free. You think that's only spiritually? Thank God it's not just spiritually. You know, we've got a couple of people up here that are going off to the mission field. If you feel God's called you to enter ministry or to, to go to another land, listen, if you are up to your eyeballs in debt, you're not going to be able to go do that. They'll come looking for you. You know? You get tethered. You can actually hinder yourself in fulfilling the call of God if you are being irresponsible with your finances. Don't do that. Do what you can to get out of it. There are practical steps that you can take. One of the best things, if you have, I just spoke with a man recently, not here, but at our church. We're going through some similar, some similar things. And this brother came up very honest, very repentant. He said, I've got four credit cards plus another loan. How do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? And so we're going to meet hopefully in the next week or two and just to sit down and go over things and talk about how he can get out. This is what church life should involve. Every part of your life is precious to God. Every part of your life, even your financial life. If it's stressing you out, Jesus cares. It's Peter included it when he said, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. But sometimes casting the cares involves a little bit of confrontation. Sometimes it involves a little bit of correction. So if you're saying ouch right now about anything we're discussing, it's a good thing. You need to build financial stability before you build a lifestyle. There are things we can't afford to live without, no matter what the culture and trends are telling us. Fulfill your financial obligations. Get your fields ready. Get, you, you, you take care of your necessary living expenses. Start taking care of any debt that you have. If you have other things that you need to support, obligations, you need to take care of them. Then you build your house. You follow your dreams. You build your reputation. You do the fun stuff that you want to do. But you want to make sure you can do those things safely without hurting you or hurting others that you're supposed to care for. The third subpoint that goes with responsibility is this. Sound work ethic is inherent to godly money management. Sound work ethic is inherent to godly money management. You know, when we talk about God meeting our needs, that does not exempt us from having to work hard. If you want Jesus to drop money out of the sky and you just get to lay there, like, Lord, I need the rent money. I'm sorry, but that's not the way that it works. <laughs> that's not the way that it works. Look at the proverb. He says, get your outdoor work in order. Go prepare your fields. God has given you land and he's given you rain. You need to do your end now. 
fulfill your responsibility and make sure you're ready to receive it. If God has given you a job, if God has given you employment, if, if God has given you people that are willing to invest in your life through some other means, the responsibility is to be a hard worker and be worthy of that. You want to be worthy of that paycheck. You want to be worthy of the money that you're making. And work ethic will get you far in life. Good work ethic will get you very far in life. It's a terrible testimony. If you, could be, you could be the most wonderful preacher in the world, but you, if you're lazy, nobody's going to be impressed with you. Nobody's going to be impressed with you. And I have, to, I have to model that before my students at the school, before my family. I don't want my son to be lazy. I don't. He already knows when he gets old enough to work, he's getting a job with his, with his uncle Pasha, the guy I co-pastor with. A tr- he, he, he comes here to preach. That man will work him. You're going to have him weeding, weeding the gardens on the campus and everything. He's going to sweat, you know, <laughs> builds character. It builds character. You know, I, the first job I ever had, it wasn't even official. I think I was 13 and a guy in our church was a, a, a brick mason. He would do all kinds of fancy patio work. And, and my parents found out that he just needed a, a, a laborer, you know, basically pick this up, pick that up. And they're like, he's 13. He's old enough. He'll work with you. First time I went out with that man, it was eight hours out in the summer and just hauling bricks back and forth. But you know what? It, it taught me a lot. It taught me the value of hard work. It taught me the dignity of hard work. It builds character. We need that. Laziness is never impressive. Laziness is a sin in God's eyes. We have to be hardworking people. Are there exceptions? Are there times where hard work can only take certain forms because you are facing a certain kind of situation? You can't be a laborer because of a physical uh, disability of some sort. Of course there are exceptions. But number one, you need to make sure that you are one of them. You do. And number two, there are other ways that you can employ yourself and be a productive person in the kingdom of God and in the workforce out there. There are many ways to do that. Many ways to do that. We don't need to be uh, crippled, so to speak, by our inabilities. So sound work ethic is inherent to godly money management. The second principle that I want to give you, the second principle is where 1 Timothy 6 comes in. So you can turn there. But biblical money management involves generosity. Biblical money management involves generosity. We're going to read just a few, uh, two paragraphs from 1 Timothy 6. We're going to read verses 6 through 10, and then we're going to jump down to verses 18 and 19. 1 Timothy 6, 6, it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 17 rather. Let's start there. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That's a really uncomfortable passage. It really is. It says a lot in there. 
about how we're to handle our resources, how we're to handle our money. And we're going to start back in verse six about godliness with contentment being great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out. We can be content with food and clothing. And then he addresses this issue of wanting to get rich. Now, I want to make a comment on this. When Paul wrote these words, if you wanted to pursue wealth, what you meant by that is I want to escape the social class that I'm in. They were inextricably linked. You're talking about a class structure in those days that we in this country, if this is the only nation you've ever lived in, we, we don't know what he's talking about. It's an unrelatable system. I know that our, our nation has its own faults. We've got problems that are real, that need to be dealt with and honestly faced head on. But you're talking about a degree of classism and inescapable poverty in this time period that we have difficulty relating to. And what that meant was that if you wanted to pursue wealth, you couldn't just go out and try to further your education. I'm going to try to pull myself up through hard work. No, you would have to often turn to corruption. You would have to start working your way in with the right people. You would have to start doing favors for people. You'd have to be in the wrong room with the wrong money and try to work your way up through that. That's why people hated tax collectors. You read the gospels and they hated the tax collectors. They got in with the Romans, said, yeah, I'll take tax money from my own people for you. But then they would extort their countrymen and they would say, here, you're going to give me a little extra. I'm going to have to tell the Romans that you didn't want to cooperate with them. And so they became wealthy through sin. And so that's why Paul says in a very general sense, if you pursue wealth, this is what could happen to you. For us today, the pursuit of wealth doesn't necessarily have to be corrupt. You can pursue wealth without compromising yourself morally. So I want to be very clear on that, that there's nothing wrong with you dreaming of, of escaping. If you grew up in a poorer neighborhood or in a poorer family and you've set your mind, you know what? I want to do something about that. I'm going to get my education. I'm going to get a good job and I want to better my life and the life of my, there is nothing inherently wrong with that whatsoever. A lot of people come to New York because they want to make it. They want to get a big break. There's opportunity here in this city that isn't found elsewhere. That is not sinful at all. It's a matter of how do you handle the pursuit and in what way are you pursuing? So I want to be clear on that. And that actually leads into the first subpoint under generosity that greed is a spiritual killer. Greed is a spiritual killer. Let's draw a line between the pursuit of wealth simply because I want to pursue a financially stable lifestyle versus the flat out love of money. Let's draw a line between that because that's ultimately what Paul is doing here as well. The love of money will lead you into morally compromising situations of all kinds. When he says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, he's saying when you love money enough, there is no limit to where you might find yourself going. You think you might have lines drawn around yourself, but when you make money your God, when the pursuit of wealth is what you ultimately serve and worship, you don't know what you're actually capable of or what you could become capable of, which is why he warns so strongly against it. If we're going to pursue wealth, and again, there is nothing inherently wrong with this, we need to make sure we're doing it in light of God's value system. Am I compromising God's system of right and wrong in the way I'm doing this? I have a good friend who attends our church, and he asked our our, our financial advisor at the school one time, he said, I feel like I should be making more money in my business. I just, because he owns a drywall company. He said, I feel like I should be making more money. And he was told, no, are, are, you, are you obeying all the laws? 
Yeah. And he said, you're being fair to your workers. Yeah, I am as much as I can. I'm, I'm a Christian, you know, great answer. I'm a Christian. That's why I'm doing it. And the guy said, you're going to have a hard time because most of the people, most of the business owners and companies who are really making it big in your kind of field, they're cutting corners somewhere. Integrity actually can slow you down in the business world in a lot of senses, you know? And so this guy, he, he wants to be financially stable. He wants to have a good business, but he's not willing to compromise God's sense of right and wrong in doing it. And God honors that. God honors that. He really does. And I thank the Lord for brothers and sisters like him who have a higher ethic than, than money. So greed is a spiritual killer. On the other hand, here's the second subpoint: Open-handedness produces humble God dependence. Now, what do I mean by that? Open-handedness. I didn't want to just say generosity in the sense of willingness to give. I wanted to say specifically open-handedness because when you live open-handedly, it's our way of saying, God, all the resources you've given me, I don't own them. They belong to you. Whatever you give, whatever you take, it's yours. And so I'm going to allow you to have complete sovereignty and control over my finances. And notice what Paul says. Look again at verse 17. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They need to be good rich in good deeds, generous and willing to share. So no matter what level of resource God has given you, our responsibility is to say, God, you gave it, it's yours. Do with it as you will. I might only be obligated to put a certain percentage in the offering plate, but you still own hundred percent. I'm only commanded specifically about 10%, but you still own hundred percent. And because God is a kind master, because he is a good king, he does not demand everything that he gives us back. He gives because he's generous himself and he, he's good and he loves us. And the other thing that this speaks to, the open-handedness, the willingness to let go and yield sovereignty over our finances to God shows that we know where our worth truly comes from. Your net worth is not your true worth. What you get on your paycheck is not your real value as a person. Okay, that has nothing to do with it. Absolutely nothing to do with it. Think of, think of the book of James. The book of James is wonderful. I got a little overwhelmed trying to prepare for this, this lesson because there's so much the Bible says about, about rich and poor, about money and financial management responsibility. It's like, where do you start? It was, my head was just spinning. This is the best I got through prayer. So hopefully it's doing it for you. But the book of James, he, he tells the rich, he rebukes them because there were problems in the churches he was writing to where the, the wealthy were taking the best seats in the house meetings when they were gathered together to have church. But the poor people would come in and here, you sit on the floor over there. And James is like, uh-uh, that classism dies at the cross. You don't let that come into the church. You don't let that kind of financial prejudice exist in this house. He tells the rich, you, you are despising the people that are richer in faith than you are. And he's pointing out the fact that who does the gospel seem to resonate with more quickly, the upper class or the lower class? And he says very honestly, it's those who know I've got nothing in this life. I can't take pride in my possessions. I don't have anything financial to lean on because that's the thing. There's an arrogance that wants to creep in with resources. When you have a lot to go on, you can feel self-sufficient. But when you're in a place of, of not having much, when you're in a place of financial lack or having very little possessions, the Bible says, look, those are the people that see the truth the fastest because they know they don't have anything. 
And so when you read stories like Zacchaeus, you find a wealthy man who is actually very aware of his true poverty. And that's why he was able to respond in a way that many in his community were not able to respond. So the Bible has a lot to say about this. But generosity protects us from greed. When we live open-handedly, when we're willing to give, when we say, God, you can have all of this. And beloved, I, I challenge you, if you are in a financially stable position, look, can I be honest with you? When people, every now and then I like to stir the pot like by giving controversial answers to questions just because I want to mess with people a little bit. I don't know if that's good or not. But people, well, the New Testament doesn't actually teach on tithing, does it? That's more Old Testament, you know, which I, that whole question is an adventure and missing the point, uh, first of all. But every now and then I'll, I'll look at them and I'll say, yeah, you're, you're right. I don't believe in tithing either. It's too cheap. And they're going, that usually, wait, wait, what? But I mean, really, if you read in the, in the New Testament, it's like these people are giving away everything and they're just, they're, they're sharing all of their abundance and their resources because they see that they're obligated to love each other, even through financial support, if that's what it takes. They believe that through their means, their resources, they could further the kingdom of God and build up the church, you know? And, and I would encourage you, don't, if you're financially stable and, and, and you're, you're doing well and things look okay and you're handling everything all right, and don't stop at 10%. There's so much else that you can do to pour into the kingdom of God. Support. Now, the amazing thing is you give to this church, like you're, you're feeding, how many children on average does, sorry, 4,000 kids is, is that per month, 4,000 kids a month get fed through this church, 4,000 kids a month in this city. And listen, that's a reality. Because I remember I used to do, I used to work with a ministry here over 10 years ago now uh, in, in Brooklyn, a specific neighborhood. It's not quite in the same state as it was then. But we would see kids who had nothing to eat the whole weekend. They had nothing to eat. We would ask them, you know, hey, how are you doing? And they were devouring the cookies and stuff we laid out. I was like, hang on now, it's not going anywhere. And we didn't you have breakfast today? No, we had birthday cake. Oh, what'd you have for dinner last night? birthday cake, you know, because mom and dad are spending all the money, you know, on addiction and other things that go into that. And the kids are just at home and whatever's in the cupboard, whatever's on the counter. So this is a reality right here in this city. There are real needs that need to be met. And thank God you're in a church that's meeting those needs. So you know where your money's going. You know, you're building the kingdom by giving here, but I would encourage you seek to live as generously as possible. Seek to live with an o as open a hand as possible. My wife and I recently, and I'm not saying this to, this is a teaching moment. You know, Jesus talked about not, you don't boast in your giving. You don't boast in your generosity. That's not, that's not what I'm doing. I, I know what I am without Christ. But my wife and I recently started supporting two kids overseas through Compassion International because we want our son we want him to grow up understanding what that is, what that means to, to give and to care about other people's problems, to see outside your own world for just a moment and realize, you know what? There's people who don't have a life as, as stable as mine. And if I'm in the position to do something about that, I've got to do it. I'm going to step up and do it. And so we read in the letters, we write back and forth. We got one coming from, from Southern Africa, another coming from, from Far East Asia. And, and it's like, we read these letters and he gets all excited. He prays for them every night. He's only three. And, but that's what we want to foster in him. But we've got to model that. We can't, we can't pass on what we're not doing ourselves. It's so critical. Model generosity. Model generosity. 
I, I need to be quick here, so bear with me. The, the third subpoint under generosity is that Christians should support kingdom members and ministers. Christians should support kingdom members and ministers. In verse 18 that we just read, Paul says that the wealthy, the rich in the church need to be generous and willing to share. They're not to look at their wealth as a symbol of status. They are simply looking, they are to look at it as a means that God has given them to be a blessing to those around them. But in chapter five, shortly before this, he says this, just listen to verses 17 through 18. He says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. And that's a, that's a, an old expression for financial support, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching for scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain and the worker deserves his wages. Supporting those who work in the church is a biblical concept. That's not something that money-grubbing pastors do because they like their lifestyle and they want you to support them. That's not the case at all. I don't care. I've told people this when they come to the church. I don't care if you give or not. That's not the issue. That's between you and Jesus. God, that's not what we're out for. But I, I, I will say this, you know, sometimes I tell my wife, my goodness, I don't know how to do anything else, man. If the day ever comes where you can't do this sort of thing full time, I've got nothing to fall back on. I never, I've only been to school for, for Bible and theology and, you know, I, I never learned another trait because right out of high school, man, I, I was, God called me to ministry. I went to summit and, and I've been doing this ever since, you know? And so it's like this for me, this is my livelihood. It is. And I take that very seriously because there are better men. There are much better men who deserve to be doing this and they're working an extra job. I've got friends who are pastors and you know, they work 60 plus a week at one job and then they pastor a church on Sunday and Wednesday night. I'm like, my God, you know, here I am. I'm, I'm doing this. I'm living the dream, you know, in so many, in so many respects, I better, I better do this. Well, I have no excuse not to do it. Well, like I, I take it extremely seriously because I know what some people face when you hear people's stories and, and what they face on a daily basis and the fears that they carry. It's like, you feel terrible, you know, but it's like, this is what it's meant to be. Just I, my life must be a sacrifice for you or I'm not worthy to be up here. That's, that's the bottom line. But this is the biblical ethic that as Christians, we are to support the kingdom of God by giving to one another and supporting those who God has called to minister to us. We're all called to do that. My wife and I, we support our church. I'm, I'm one of the pastors and I still give because I know what we're doing and I believe in it. And I know the needs that we're meeting in our community. Finally, last principle, and then we'll begin to wrap up here. Biblical money management, it, we said it involves responsibility, it involves generosity, but it also involves earthly joys. That's the third principle. Biblical money management, management involves earthly joys. Look at verse 17 of 1 Timothy 6 one more time. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Catch this who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, this is a really challenging, challenging verse because it just shows you the generosity of God, that he's not a demanding overlord or, 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 or taskmaster, that he's generous and he gives and he actually wants you to enjoy life. God does not delight in your misery. He doesn't. He's not out to make you miserable. There are times he puts us in miserable seasons because he's trying to instruct us. He's trying to grow us and mature us. He knows as a good father how to do that best, but God doesn't take any delight in us being miserable. He wants you to enjoy life. And this verse is not limited to money. It's not. The first sub point there is that God desires that we enjoy 
his world. Do you know that God delights in you enjoying a walk? You know, if you take a walk and you're just admiring the beauty of nature, you're hearing the birds, you think, my goodness, this is so wonderful. God delights in that. He gave us this world to be enjoyed. A good meal. My goodness. What's more wonderful than a good meal, man? I, I, Jesus gave us that. Like, that's a blessing from God. He says, I gave this to you. I remember talking with somebody one time, and he said, yeah, an atheist challenged me. How do you know God exists? I looked at him, I said, taste buds. Really, the most brilliant answer I've ever heard. I mean, what's the point? You don't need taste buds for survival. That's just a random evolutionary thing. I mean, come on. You know, sometimes poison tastes good. It's not protecting us from anything. God actually engineered us just so you could enjoy a good meal. He gave you taste buds so you could delight in the, in the taste of that fried chicken, man, so that you could relish the, the, the flavor of that steak and all the herb. My goodness. Sometimes I'm like, who discovered this? When did this happen, man? Who found the garlic bulb the first time and said, let's put this in something? I'm forever grateful. But God gave us these things to enjoy. And so what Paul is doing in this verse is he's saying, listen, God wants you to enjoy life. And there's lots of different ways you can live it without wealth. But if you have been given wealth, remember, God has also given you that. He's provided you with it as a means of enjoyment. But you can't forget the principles that I've given you before. Because remember, this is as Paul is commanding them about generosity. This is as he's commanding them about open-handedness. So he's saying, look, it's not, a, it's not a sin for you to go out and say, man, I can finally get that phone I've been wanting. I can finally get that this or that that. There's nothing greedy or sinful about that. Man, I'm up for that promotion. I've worked so hard. There's nothing sinful about that. Pursue that promotion. Go ahead and do it. There's nothing wrong. God has given you these opportunities and these resources to enjoy life. The one thing he expects is that he remain God even of our finances. That he be God even of our finances. And that's the final point. The last one, if we could bring that up. When enjoyed biblically, money is a gift from God. It is. It's, it's a means that we can thrive in this world. And this is, again, when it's enjoyed biblically, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. But when you accept it as, look, this is the way our society functions. This is the way our world operates. I want to feed my kids. I want to have a stable life. I've got to do it. But then when you have extra, when you have more and you're fulfilling your duties, there's nothing wrong with enjoying it. There's nothing wrong with being glad that a little windfall or a blessing has come your way. Amen. So today we just wanted to lay a foundation you know, for biblical principles on money management. And the next two Sundays are going to focus on some more specifics. I don't know what is in Elder Jerry's heart. I, Pastor Carter shared a little bit with me uh, of what's in his. But I, I'm trusting that God's really going to be guiding us into some important truth that we need in this very materialistic society that we're in right now. So I'd like to invite all of you to stand. And, uh, you know, the, the altar call is something that we believe very strongly in. It's, it's not some kind of magical formula. It's not like there's you know, extra anointing or blessing at the front. Uh, Jesus can hit you all the way in the back. It's not a problem for him. The, the reason why we do this is because we believe there's, there's power in us outwardly responding to what he's doing inwardly in our hearts. And I was thinking about, you know, God, what kind of altar call do you give after a teaching like this? You know, normally I would just say, all right, have a good night. See you next week. But I, I don't know. I actually would like to invite anyone, if you're in 
if you're in really tough financial straits, and, and there is no shame in this, because we do not know if you're coming down because you made the mess, or if circumstances have made the mess, it could be medical bills, we don't know. But I want to pray for people that just, you really need a financial breakthrough. You're in a tough spot. It's stressing you out. It's putting you in fear and you need God to do something. If you have things that you need to get right with God, if you have been allowing financial behaviors in your life that we talked about today, then you do need to fix that. You do need to repent and get that right with Jesus. But if you need God to just touch your finances, say, God, I I, I don't know where this bill is going to come from. I don't know where this is going to come from. Then I want to invite you to come down and we're going to agree with with you in prayer. We're going to believe God to give you that, that provision that you need. Because look, that part of your life matters to God. That part of your life is important to God. Maybe it's you want to continue school and you don't know where the, the money's going to come from to pay for it. Look, God cares about that. We can pray for that. You know, if you're facing potential homelessness or eviction, oh, we don't want that for you. God doesn't want that for you. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who have come down here to the front, God, just seeking prayer. Lord, you know their situations. You know their needs, oh God. Lord, some of them are in a position that through bad decisions, bad counsel, bad habits, they've put themselves in. God, some are in positions that medical issues put them in. Some are in circumstances that they legitimately couldn't help and everything in between. But God, the thing that binds them together is that you love them. You are not angry with them. You are not ashamed of them. You care about their needs, oh God, and you are ready and you are willing to meet the need. And so, Lord, I'm asking God that you would send deliverance, Lord, in whatever form that they need it. God, I pray that not one person at this altar would be unable to continue their education. God, I pray that not one person at this altar today would be unable to continue living in a home of some kind. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would do miracles if necessary. God, I pray that you would bring money in miraculously from anywhere. God, I've seen you do that in so many people's lives, including my own. And Lord, I thank you, Jesus. My own story involves a mess that I had made. And just because you're good, you delivered me, God. And Lord, I thank you. You did it in a night. You did it in a single night, oh God. And Lord, I'm praying that you would give my brothers and sisters here the same kind of story if the situation calls for it. God, show yourself. Show yourself to be the good father that you assure us you are. God, I pray that you would help all of us as your people to represent you and honor you in the way that we handle what you have given us. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help all of us, Lord, to rise above the circumstances that we might be in. God, for those who just need to learn a hard work ethic, for those who need to learn discipline and responsibility, God, by your spirit, give them the strength to do those things. Lord, to put healthy habits into practice, Lord, so that they can get out of debt, so that they can get into a life of of stability and and financial security, oh God, and that they can begin to do things and enjoy things and explore things that they've never gotten to before. Lord, for any who might be in positions, they can't help, oh God. It's just hard. They have been dealt a bad hand. God, I pray that you would do miracles for them, Lord. God, I pray that you would open doors for them that the system can't open. God, we all live in a broken system, Lord God. There is no solution that will be offered by governments, Lord. There's no solution that will be offered, oh God, by man that will be able to fix everything across the board. But you're the God. You're the God who can make all things right. You're the God who can meet us in our need. You're the God who transcends the the, the foolishness of rulers, the greed of, of corporations, God. Lord, you're able to go beyond all of that. And Lord, I pray that you would meet every need that's represented at this altar, God. The things that I can't even think to pray for, Lord, you know about. 
You know about it, God. And we look to you to do miracles, Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray that that you would help us, Lord, to be able to live with fearless generosity. God, that we would never wonder if we can afford to be kind to people. Lord, may we never wonder if we can afford to be open-handed. God, I pray that we would never fall into that trap. Lord, I begin with my own heart. I begin with my own priorities, God. I pray that none of us in this room today or even listening online would ever be afraid to live generously, Jesus. You've commanded it. You are the most generous person in the universe. You're the one who really gave 100%. You're the one who really gave it all, God. And I thank you that you didn't question whether you should, whether you wanted to or not. You did it, Lord. And God, I pray that we would model that. We would model that kind of submission and surrender, even of our finances to you. Lord, I I thank you, God, that you care about these things. You care about every aspect of our life. And I just pray that my brothers and sisters would, would return even next week with a shout of joy at the testimony that you give them between now and next week. And we pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Praise be to God. Praise be to God.